Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are both U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are those of the hosts, not official military policy. The opinions expressed by Kyle are his own, and not of his employer or any business he's associated with. For today's episode, we have a special guest, Whitney. Thanks for coming on the cast. Could you please give us an uh, intro? Tell us about yourself. Sure. I am uh, a cybersecurity professional as of relatively recently, so I've been working in cyber a little over two years. Prior to that, I worked in data analytics, but my actual background is very different from where most cyber folks uh, generally come from. So I spent uh, the whole first part of my career working in foreign policy. I got my degree in international relations, and then I worked at the Department of Defense uh, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy, focused mostly on Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, in my time in the private sector since then, I've worked in business intelligence and journalism. I've written for a bunch of different uh, foreign policy-focused publications. So cyber is relatively new to me. I'm not super technical. I don't have a super technical background, uh, but I've learned a lot of it on the job and I do a unique role uh, in, in my organization in, in the cyber realm uh, that I think we're going to talk about a little bit more uh, today. Um, so that's the, the very short version, but I grew up in California. I went to school in New York. I'm mostly a New Yorker at this point. And uh, yeah, that's sort of how my, my career has evolved. Awesome. A again, thanks so much for joining us. And yeah, let's let's start talking about uh, that job, because I think you have a really unique uh, role compared to some of the things that I've seen out there. Um, and and it, there's a lot of nuance just in the little words. So you are a cyber event manager. W yeah. What actually is that? So it, we don't plan parties uh, related to cyber, uh, which I was really going to ask you for an invite. Yes. You, you that is, that's really sad. You, you could have surprised. like routers hanging from the ceiling, you know? Yes, uh. yes. No, it's uh, it's unfortunate, particularly, and I know we're going to talk about gender at some point, if you're trying to recruit um, female candidates through HR, because a lot of the women that you will get in your bucket are actually um, like wedding planners. So they see event planning and that's how they get routed to you. So I'll, I'll be really excited that there's a bunch of women like in the queue when I'm trying to hire someone. And then it turns out that they all plan weddings and then I get really depressed. Um, so a general reminder that the most difficult thing in all of tech is naming things. Yes. And recruiting women. <laughs> Number two. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so naming things. So yes, cyber event management is not planning parties. It is managing um, large scale cyber incidents. So the way that we think about cyber events versus cyber incidents is really just a matter of scale. Uh, so a cyber incident that might be managed by a CERT team, by a cyber incident response team would be something that is essentially manage, it is manageable just by them for the most part. I mean, there may be other technical teams that need to get involved in rebuilding a machine, for example, uh, you know, isolating a machine, um, cleaning it up, something like that. You have a piece of malware or something that gets through uh, that needs to be managed. But generally, the scale of those is going to be relatively small. A cyber event is going to be either one of those types of cyber incidents that is at a scale that requires organization-wide coordination and sort of management, or something that's a little bit different. So it's not just a ticket, an incident that has then blown up into something bigger, but it's an expedited patch, or it's a threat that we see coming down the pike, or it's a data leak, 
or, you know, there is a very broad sort of spectrum of, of things that get thrown our way. And, and part of the remit is really to be a, a bit of a catcher's mitt for anything cyber related that's not necessarily going to come up through your traditional cert team or insider response, uh, insider threat team, uh, but sort of those weird odds and ends that come up, um, a security researcher coming in and trying to report a vulnerability, you know, who chases down whether or not it's real, who deals with the remediation, who reaches out to that person. Um, so it, it's a really, um, it's a really broad bucket. And I think that's, that's by design. So it's almost anything that's too big for one or two teams to manage on their own that requires cross-organizational communication coordination, and that doesn't neatly fall into the remit of one of the more classical cyber, organiz uh, cyber organizations, like a vulnerability management or an enterprise security platform. Um, so a, we, get, we get a lot of hybrid sort of projects and events um, that, are, that tend to be on a, a relatively large scale. Wow. Okay. That sounds like the most exciting cyber job I've heard of. <laughs> And that's saying something, you know, in a industry of very boring jobs descriptions. Um, sometimes it can be. Yes, it can be boring plenty of times too. Don't worry. <laughs> you mentioned that you know you you don't have a a large scale uh, technical background, but from the the billet description there, it kind of sounds like you're managing a bunch uh, of highly technical teams. Do you find that that's something that comes natural or easy to you? Or is that something that you've kind of had to learn the secret handshake and, and speak geek a little bit more? Yeah, it's somewhere in between. I mean, I think the key to that for me, because it is, it, it can be really challenging because you're always you're always pretty much not the dumbest person in the room, but you're always, <laughs> you're always going to be the least technical person in the room in, in most of these organizations, because everyone else that you're working with is a computer engineer. They're, you know, they have, have a computer science degree. They've been doing this for a very long time. And they're very familiar with the specific infrastructure of the organization that you work for. So I'm never going to know what, what all of these people know. And I, I, I think what's allowed me to be successful in this particular role is going into it very um, cognizant of that and very honest about it. So I think where people get themselves into trouble is when they start to pretend that they know what they're ta talking about or sort of get too far out of their depth um, without going to the person who does know the answer and saying, hey, I don't, I don't really understand this. Can you walk me through it? Because the reality is nobody in that organization knows all of the things that all of the people who are involved in that event remediation know. Um, and it's just, you just happen to be the person who knows basically none of them. Um, so it's a, you know, you're not there to provide technical expertise. And if you're very upfront about that and you say, hey, I'm here to herd all these cats and to help you guys get this done and to help communicate to leadership about it and to help coordinate it so that you can go and do the technical things that you need to do and not spend your time answering questions from leadership who don't understand what the hell you're talking about. People will generally appreciate that if you try to get too far up in their business and, and kind of get too far out of your depth, you're going to look very stupid. Um, so I try to avoid that. I've also spent a lot of time trying to learn the technical, you know, enough of the technical pieces so that even with that going in point, I, I still can sort of speak, you know, I, I know enough over two and a half years to be able to, you know, play a cyber person on TV. 
and staying at a Holiday Inn last night uh, probably helped as well, right? Yes, yes, always. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think um, what, what Whitney just said there, um, I'd like to kind of tease that apart a little bit because I think uh, just for our listeners, right? Um, the the number one word here, uh, and Whitney, please correct me if you think I'm wrong here, um, and guys the same, but cyber event management is all about ownership and driving, in my yep. opinion, right? So a lot of the technical folks, which you know, I'm one of myself um, and have dabbled in cyber event, cyber event management in, in a past role, but um, it is super non-trivial to take a massive scale event or what you even think will turn into a massive scale event, because you might not know at the time, you know, the, the level of the issue or its complexity that you're dealing with and drive it over a multi-business organizational construct where you're not just dealing with technical folks and legal folks, but you're dealing with public relations and potentially HR folks and, and gluing all of that together yeah. uh, to then drive and own, you know, that, that event it yeah. is, and I'll say it again, just wickedly non-trivial. So, um, so I just kind of wanted to drive that home for for our listeners. But, uh, but, but back over to you, Whitney, because I, I just think that's super important to kind of say up front. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true, and I think that that also helps with that credibility piece because people really do appreciate what a nightmare, what you just described, can be and how challenging it can be, and particularly when you have you tend to have very senior people from all those organizations that you just named involved. So you're not necessarily just dealing with public relations or dealing with, um, you know, the legal folks or the business side, but you tend to be dealing with the very top tier of those organizations because the people who hear cyber and want to get on that conference call are, they're not junior level folks. So, so you're juggling a whole bunch of people who need to be stitched into that picture, as you said, and, and people who at my level, I can't really tell what to do. And so there's sort of a delicate dance of like, how do we get all of these people to do what we need them to do in order to manage this, you know, cross organizational problem while, really having a lot of elephants in the room who have a lot of power and who don't necessarily, who understand far less than, than you do even about the technical aspects of what's happening. Um, so you're in that position then of explaining the technical piece and also trying to get everybody to sort of come to the table and do their piece of the plan um, and make sure that exactly that, that you're in the driver's seat, regardless of who's going to show up on your conference call and how senior they might be. Um, and make sure that you're driving towards the right conclusion. That's sort of been the consensus that's been driven by the technical experts and everybody else. So that part can be really challenging. And I, I generally find that my technical counterparts are very appreciative of that piece because being able to deal with the lawyers or the PR folks or whomever um, sort of on their behalf and make sure that everyone's reading from the same piece of paper is um, not something that they want to do or necessarily have the skill set to do, they want to go and do the technical remediation and we sort of take the rest of that organizational piece off their plate. Yeah, I think two here, uh, to kind of dovetail up of what you said there, Wendy, is when you talk about the different types of personalities in the room or the level, right, like uh, senior manager, you know, manager, mm -hmm. senior manager, uh, you get the executive C-suite or S-suite folks and they're on the call. Like, for example... You know, if, if you're dealing with a 
a potentially extinction level event for not even say your company, but maybe one of your subsidiaries mm-hmm. and their CEO or CFO is on the line and you're the cyber event manager who's, as we mentioned, driving and kind of, you know, making sure you're solving the right problem and not just a symptom of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, those C-suite executives or, um, you know, S-level executives kind of put all their trust in you by default, unless you do something that like makes them question otherwise, which right. often happens, I think, on those calls. But but anyways, um, it's just, you know, to watch, um, you know, it's almost kind of like a delicate balance or symphony to watch some of these events go down and just be a fly on the wall to dial in and um, in, in a previous role, that's kind of what I would do with, um, you know, you mentioned the difference earlier between incident response and cyber event management mm-hmm. and those young incident responders, when they listen to events that you manage just as an observer, almost mm-hmm. like, you know, a resident or a new surgeon would just watch, you know, a more senior doctor or physician do a surgery. It, you just gain so much experience, but and then at the same time, never really kind of understand what it's like until you're in that position running the event. So um, again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, almost talking about the problem in, in a way that I'm admiring it, but I just, I really feel like folks um, sometimes to your you know earlier point, when you talk about incidents, they don't necessarily get right off the bat that this is potentially a business ending event or something that could hit revenue so hard from like a non-DOD perspective that it could be an organizational changing event right off the bat, um, yeah. if not managed correctly. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that the the pace at which you can go from something that seems relatively minor to something that, that could have that potential level of impact is is pretty striking sometimes. Like it, it can go from zero to 60 very fast. Um, and so I think, you know, sometimes there's, a criticism, I think, of our team and some of the teams that we work with that we we over escalate or we over rotate on smaller incidents that come in. And it's sort of it's it's a constant balance to say, you know, yes, I understand that this is probably nothing. However, if it so happens to not be nothing, it's my, you know, it, it's my name on the line who who signed off and said, well, we think this is probably not a big deal. And so there's a lot of sort of leads that we run down or we get people to run down where people are like, oh, this, <laughs> this really doesn't seem like it's a big deal. And you, you kind of have to be the one to say, yes, I realize that. But just if it, if it were to be what it could be, you know, this would be catastrophic. So I need you to look at it anyway. Um, and I know that I'm really annoying and I'm sorry. <laughs> like, can you please just run it down? I know it's going to take you 10 minutes and let's make sure that this is not, like you said, you know, a, a business ending or, or business compromising event uh, waiting to happen that we just um, wrote off because it didn't look, it didn't look that scary when it came across the first time. Um, so that's another big piece of it as well as sort of prioritizing things that people might not necessarily be putting into a bigger business context. So let me try and pull this back for a, a marine perspective for a second, because Whitney, as you're describing some of these, uh, you know, job duties and things that you're doing, it sounds very reminiscent of, uh, and I'll just use a personal anecdote. I'm not going to at all project this onto John or Rich, but I feel like as a as a cyber officer in the Marines, 
and I was only 10% of what John and Rich are ever doing here, I felt that I was constantly trying to convince people who maybe didn't have the technical depth that I did or others did to do something that they maybe didn't want to do. And it feels like, you know, you have this incredible combination of previous experience that now leads you to be able to be both, you know, like project management, chaos wrangler, cat herder, social engineer, and, you know, sort of like, like convince people with the smile to do the thing that they don't want to do in the tech realm. And, and pulling back to your experience prior to this, because you, as you self-described having a non-traditional way into this field, how do you feel or what do you feel are the, like the biggest nuggets of experience that you were able to bring to hit the ground running on this? Like, you know, you've got such a diverse background of different things that you've done across DOD and across the civilian sector. Like, uh, what are the things that you feel are your superpowers in coming to be a really kick-ass cyber event manager? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a huge piece of our job is just communication skills, written and verbal. So being able to brief someone, a, a group of people who are coming from very different perspectives, like you said, the lawyers, the technology people, the uh, senior management, whomever, in, in a concise way that's going to be able to speak to all of those audiences at the same time, and then to be able to write it up in a way that sounds like English for people who are not highly technical and to be able to boil down decisions, which is really what a policy job is in government. And the Marine Corps has plenty of policy jobs. So a lot of times when you talk to people in the private sector and you say that you worked on policy in government, they kind of look at you like, uh-huh. You know, like what people don't really understand what that means, but it's really about pulling together all of the relevant data points, right? And presenting a couple of policy decisions to a senior leader and saying, here's what I think we should do. And that's really what is required of a cyber event manager is here's all the information that we have. Here's what we got from the, the CERT team. Here's what we got from vulnerability management. Here's what threat intelligence is telling us about what's happening in the threat landscape outside of our network. Here's what you know senior leaders have told us so far they think they want to do. Here it all is on one piece of paper in clear English and send that around you know, before the call or whatever it is so that everyone can get on with the same piece of paper and and make a clear and informed decision. Um, so that that policy making experience that I feel I, I mostly got in government and was forced to hone to the point where every sentence has to have a purpose. And you guys know this just from working with you know senior military leaders. Nothing in that brief that goes to you know the geo or whomever, whomever you're briefing can be. There's no filler, right? Every line has to be there for a specific purpose, right? And it's, it's conveying a very specific piece of information that needs to be there in order for that decision to get made. That ability to outline information in that way and to be very clear and concise and communicate in writing and verbally, I think is, is by far the most important skill for a cyber event manager in general. And I think that government experience and that policy experience is really an incredible place to get that because it's exactly what's required of you and it's what they train you to do, especially if you come in very young, which I did. I mean, I started in government and I was 26. Um, so it's really, I like, I grew up in that environment and that's where I learned to write and learn to brief people and, and sort of learn to engage with leadership. So um, I think I, I've benefited a, a tremendous amount from that particular type of training. Yeah. So, um, so Whitney, thanks. And, and Kyle, that was a great question. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we started talking back about, you know, Whitney coming back, uh, or co- going into the cyber event management space from, 
from the government space. And I think, you know, just tying it back to some of the listeners that might be wondering, hey, what, what does this mean for me inside, you know, my specific niche area and the DOD component? Or, it, you know, if I'm a Marine listening, what does this mean for me? So I think, you know, one, one of the best ways that we can make an analogy here is to almost tie it back to uh, being in an operations center when you receive what we would refer to as a tick, right? Troops in contact. Uh-huh. And you're leading that entire ops center, right? And you might have just gone through some school, right? Um, in somewhere in the DOD where you learned all these things about like notifying people and bringing them in and driving and leading, but you really haven't exercised that muscle outside of a training event, right? Uh-huh. But then all of a sudden you're in Afghanistan or you're in Iraq and boom, you know, you're in charge. And now to even make it a more specific analogy, it's joint in nature. So you add that flavor of it's not your organization where you might not speak to your point, Whitney, the same language as another service component, Uh um, or you just don't do things or plan things the same way. And so I think you know, what cyber event management um, means going forward to kind of some of our listeners that are looking at this from either a big green machine Marine Corps perspective or from just a generalized DOD purple joint perspective is um, we know moving forward that cyber related events are going to be part of our defense strategy, right? And more importantly, they're going to be part of our defense operations, whether we're forward deployed or back here. And just knowing one, that there's a process set that you kind of go through. And um, and this is where I'm looking for kind of feedback from the group um, after kind of you know tying it back into the DOD is that sometimes, in my opinion, iterating towards simplicity is way better uh, than iterating towards complex- complexity in the long run. What I mean by that is having a process to know how to work through phases of that event um, from the initial notification into an assessment phase, and then into what uh, folks would call on the you know defensive cyber operations side of the house into a containment phase where there's some sort of threat actor and you've now contained what they did or what they're doing to some segment or you know environment in your uh, your workspace, and then you get into this recovery phase where you're recovering and you get your services back up and running. Um, so my point in 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 ranting there for a minute is um, the DOD has these problems just like the private sector does. And two, um, iterating towards a simple process and getting repet- repetitions or reps and sets, you know, to use a, a CrossFit phrase there, uh, uh, Kyle and John. Um, Thanks, buddy. Is, Appreciate it. Had to throw that out there. Um, it, it's super important, right? Like you don't want to be... Um, going through the toughest challenge of your professional career without getting some reps and sets. And we talked about in a previous episode, uh, Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 7, uh, Learning, which talks about, you know, making sure before you're in a combat environment that you actually are practicing the plays or getting the reps and sets on what you do. Even though we train to approximate combat and war, we never really get there because you can't really put your life on the line in training. Although some you can argue like aviation and things like that, or uh, special forces kind of approximate that. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's super relevant to say you need to do this stuff before you go down range. And two, you need to make sure that you have a simple process in your head to understand how you're trying to drive uh, towards a positive end state, if that makes sense. 
that makes perfect sense. And and I want to add a couple of things because both of you, uh, Whitney and Rich, hit some pretty key points for me. So one, uh, Whitney hit the importance of making sure you can articulate yourself and you know specifically written communication. I, I think there's been an awful lot of backlash, especially in the cyber realm. A, a lot of people, you know, you can search Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever and see a, a dozen different articles about how college degrees are stupid and about how it's all about either certifications or self-learning or, you know, th- this one vendor's path or just learning in the cloud or whatever. Um, but he- here's my plug to the audience of, you know, I personally have a, a crap ton of certifications, so I obviously think that's incredibly important, but do not underestimate the power of a a college degree, which pretty much validates two things. You can learn and you can write. Um, And what Whitney and Rich both describe, talk about the power of your written word. A lot of times you're not going to get a chance, whether it's uh, in the corporate world, you're probably not going to get a chance to be in with the C-suite folks, but your writing probably will. Um, And the same thing, like you're probably not going to be in with a bunch of GOs making a decision, but I'm willing to bet the info paper or a point paper is in the room and they're reading it. Um, So, you know, your technical uh, blast radius of impact is going to be pretty relevant based on how well you can write. Uh, And and if you can't express yourself well, uh, that can really be a problem. Yeah. So Whitney, let me ask you a a follow-up question to this because you've undoubtedly seen, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of examples of the ways that companies respond to different cyber events. Uh, What are your takeaways to things that you think everybody could do better? Is there uh, some some basic things that everyone needs to work on in order to be better at handling cyber events? Or are there more complex things that we need to get better at? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's hard to say from the outside how an organization is necessarily, how their inner workings are dealing and managing with, with cyber events. So it's hard to know, for example, how Capital One actually dealt with the incident that, that occurred on their network. What I will say, we see a dramatic um, sort of array of performance on and and where a lot of companies really sort of fall down is on the communications piece. Um, So this is less relevant probably on the DOD side, although not not irrelevant. Um, A lot of companies don't communicate clearly and completely upfront when something happens and they try to either obscure or downplay or um, sort of buy themselves time. Uh, when it comes to public statements and engaging with uh, clients or vendors or other people who may potentially be impacted by something that happens on their network. And that seems to be the the kiss of death for a lot of organizations because everyone these days is vulnerable to cyber attacks. And it's not necessarily going to be a major reputational issue for you if your company is hit with some sort of malware or has some kind of a cyber event. It's it doesn't have to be the end of the world. However, if you mishandle the PR afterwards and you don't, you're not upfront with your clients about what the risk is, about what happened, uh, about you know how you're managing their information, how you communicate with them directly. That's when you start to lose the confidence, I think, of of the sector of your clients. Um, so we've seen companies do this well. We've seen companies do it very poorly. Um, and I think that's really 
from from what we can see from the outside, to me, that's the differentiator in how organizations deal with these incidents, right? I mean, there, there's obviously other things like, you know, if you have ransomware on your network and you shut things down quickly enough, that is going to, um, that's going to help dramatically um, coming back up too quickly. Uh, we've seen in a lot of cases where a company will immediately say, well, we're clean um, and sort of go right back up to normal, uh, normal operations when even if they are probably clean, it sort of undermines everybody's confidence in their analysis if they're willing to say that they're clean that quickly because it, it's just not possible that they could know that. Um, so so we do see that sort of thing. But I think that they're all part of the same kind of type of mistake, which is like, how much of this can we sweep under the carpet? And that tends to really backfire, I think, for a lot of organizations when they're not, um, they're not upfront about, about what they're dealing with. Yeah, I think so, Whitney. Um, I think there's one thing I'd really like to pull out of that that you said. Um, I think you know you kind of implied it, which is there's this unspoken trust, right, between people and organizations, and then people external to the organization uh, as well. So on the on the private sector side, you, know, you could say that you know there's customer loyalty, right, because people generally do business with you for whatever reason. They choose, but they definitely have a reason, right? No matter what your market sector is, right? Whether it's finance or e-commerce or whatever. Um, And then I think on the DOD side of the house, the same goes uh, to be true in the joint community. And what I mean by that is, even though we have all these networks, right, that are, you know, uh, different security enclaves and there are solutions that allow you to go between those networks, right? Um, Or there's not because it's so critical of a system that those air gaps. Exist, mm-hmm. Right, you have to be able to communicate um, directly the impact of what's going on, so that you, your um, competency and judgment kind of come across in a way that you earn trust across uh, the DoD. If if I could just make that analogy, right? And I've seen that go bad really quickly um, for uh, reasons you mentioned earlier, which are related to communications, right? So <laughs> I think a lot of times it's very important that cyber event managers um, or just folks that are running operations at a high level in the DOD uh, jointly can communicate effectively because you might actually not know what the problem is. And that's okay. As long as you're, you know, driving Mm -hmm. direction and you're giving um, your partners who are helping you try to solve this problem, you know, a sense of honesty, trust, and that trust generally comes from the fact that you sound competent and you write effectively to John's point, right? So those two skills, you know, cannot be overstated enough, I feel. And I think the last thing, you know, kind of key off of what you're you're mentioning, and just to talk (laughs) about you in front of you in general, uh, (laughs) I think it's really important that cyber event managers or, or people running complex problems or leading complex problems just come from a diverse background. Right. Um, Because I've seen a lot of folks that are like to your earlier points in in the talk that are so technical and have been around for a while. Maybe they've they've grown into management or they've grown into program management and they're less on the tech side. But um, they have this sense of kind of bias. Right. Because they've been around the industry for so long that they're generally tending to try to fit certain things they see into a bucket. And that might actually not be the most appropriate thing 
to actually solve your problem or simplify the issues you're having. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's definitely true. And I, I think it's true, you know, really for, for any job, any, any role will benefit, any organization will benefit from, you know, a more diverse workforce from bringing people in with different points of view, with different life experience, with different cultural backgrounds, you know, that's sort of a, a, a well-worn, but, but accurate, um, <laughs> statement. But I, I do think um, particularly with this type of role where you do have to sort of pull a bunch of pieces of information together and, and deal with a lot of personalities, um, there's something to be said for um, it, it's specifically it, it's particularly conducive to, to that type of um, to that type of workforce because you don't necessarily need, that super technical person, you de- you do need to find someone with the the social skills and sort of the the background to be able to juggle all of those personalities and to be able to to communicate sort of frankly and and humbly uh, with with a lot of different technical and senior people. So that particular skill set is not necessarily going to come from the most technical person in the room or the person with the most extensive cybersecurity training, but maybe someone from a totally different background from a liberal arts background. Um, you know, they need enough technical training to be able to get by, but you know, for a policy background, a journalism background. Um, and I think we've been pretty good about hiring from a, a broad spectrum, although we just hired yet another Marine, uh, you'll be happy to know. So uh, not that good uh, at mixing it up. But um, but even still, I mean, the Marines that we've hired onto our team are um, intel officers for the most part. They're not super technical. They're not you guys. You know, they're not super technical um, folks and they don't come from those types of MOS. So um, yeah, so I, I think these roles in particular, diversity is, is, is important, but, you know, of course it's, it's important for, for everybody and, and across the board. Um, but it's more of a, a, there's a heavier emphasis on people skills. And I think those are the jobs where diversity probably comes out the most and is the most valuable. So basically, Whitney, what I think I took away from what you just said was that comm guys are generally much smarter than Intel guys. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> That's not what I said. I said they were more technical, which I think is oh, generally well, true. I, I guess I just heard that. Oops. But um, take take yeah, from well, it what you will. Okay, that, that's fair. I think. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to the uh, Intel-based hate mail uh, coming coming shortly. <laughs> um, no, but I think we we started to hit on something there that that is really important, which is kind of talking to diversity. Um, and so just to bring out a couple. Uh, thoughts about this. We've we've spoken about this on the cast. I, I believe it was our very first cast uh, when Kyle mentioned that we're generally unicorn hunting. When you talk about in the military, we need people that you know fit within height, weight standards, and PT pretty aggressively, and are willing to give up certain personal liberties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and we're kind of like narrowing it down more and more and more and more. And then now Whitney kind of came in and said, and oh by the way you know, massive uh, interpersonal skills and ability to absorb technical information. Um, So I feel like I got to say it again. Um, This is not going to get any easier. Every every day forward, it is going to be more and more difficult uh, to recruit for the military. And and I think something that, you know, is a little bit uncomfortable, but something we need to talk about is the fact that 
right now, uh, while women are, according to the last census, 50.8% of the population, uh, as of 2016, they were 8% of enlisted Marines and 7.5% of officers. So as we continue to unicorn hunt to uh, ignore or to not make a conscious effort to make a more welcoming and a more attractive workplace for more than half of the population is is something I believe we can't afford to do. Um, thoughts? I mean, I would definitely agree with that. I think just from a sheer numbers perspective, if you're not if you're not getting 50% of the population in there, your talent pool is dramatically reduced. And if you're trying to find the best people, that is just numerically a problem. And that's true for, for any sector. Um, you know, the Marine Corps, and I've spent a lot of time looking at women in the military in general, and uh, from a research perspective, Marine Corps is, um, I'll say the worst, uh, but the least diverse from a, <laughs> from a gender perspective. Um, and I think that that requires um, probably some some soul searching from a cultural perspective. I mean, I, I think there's some self-selection involved. There's some uh, physical requirements that probably come in there as well. But th- there's clearly, um, you know, a cultural dynamic to it. And, and I will say, you know, any any female Marine that I've interviewed for my projects or that I've worked with, I immediately assume are, you know, ninjas just for making it through the the organization and sort of surviving to to see another day because it really is, it's a, it's an extremely challenging thing to pull off. Um, And it does put the organization at a disadvantage to not, to not have that talent. So um, I think that goes for everybody, but um, the military and, and the Marine Corps in particular has, as a real problem. And, and some of that, like I said, is self-selecting, but some of it's also cultural. And, um, you know, as sort of the, the big wars of the last 10 years wind down and we have a much smaller, what looks like it's going to be a, a smaller um, military in general, how do we make sure that that smaller and, and more highly trained and more technical force is um, as diverse as it can be and brings all of those diverse skill sets um, in with it. So, you know, you guys are in the, in, on the inside on those. So I'd be, I'd be interested in your thoughts, but it seems like a pretty straightforward numbers game in some ways to me. Yeah. So, uh, I, there's some things here that I, I'd like to pull out too. I, I think, um, so looking at kind of tying what we were talking about before cyber event management into, you know, this conversation about diversity and, um, you know, just making sure that your organization is representative of a whole bunch of of different attributes, right? Whether that's gender, culture, right? Skill sets from a technical perspective and non-technical perspective. Um, I think one of the, the key things that I look for is setting your organization up for effective problem solving, right? Because that's kind of what cyber event management is. It's also what war fighting's about to, to harken back to some of like the Marine Corps doctrinal publications that we've talked about in the past. You know, we, they mentioned things like maneuvering against your enemy, right? Not attacking your enemy from his or her strong point, but seeking weakness out in, in attacking from that perspective if you're on the offensive. So it, from a uh, diversity perspective, it, it's it's 
in my opinion, uh, all kind of attributes, right, that you kind of want to balance the playing field out for. Um, and then you could probably tune your organization to get towards what you need for specific kind of operations. And so what I mean by that is some, some of the most analytical folks that I have met are not actually people that have gone through uh, what we would call, you know, greater than secondary education, right? So they don't have college degrees or they don't have advanced college degrees where they have a master's or a doctorate. doctorate. But the folks that I'm talking about are kind of salt of the earth mechanics and people that just have brains that are wired to figure out problem sets, right? And and I think when you like you have a bias from an educational perspective, um, and so being a hiring manager on the private sector or in the private sector at one point, not we we would look at how we wrote job requisitions, right? Or um, and job descriptions, right? And, and in it, there would be things like, you know, mi- basic minimal qualifications, like must have a bachelor's degree, right? And and I think that's valid for roles where you, you actually want to, like a certification, show that somebody um, has the ability to write, right? Be published, be evaluated um, against a certain standard, right? Just like we have training and readiness manuals in the DOD. You, you do want to make sure that there's a baseline of skills required for the job role. So you don't put somebody in a position where they're going to fail out, uh, right out of the back because that's not good for anybody. It's not good for the organization. It's not good for the individual. But at the same time, um, I think when, when we're talking about highly complex problems in, in our subset, we're talking a little bit more on the engineering side of the house, right? You, you just want people that can figure stuff out. Um, and so I was going with this entire rant is, is I remember hiring two specific folks that will remain nameless on, on this uh, podcast, but that constantly stick out in my brain as the reason why diversity is important. Um, and that's because I remember just vividly and aggressively and passionately describing to the rest of this hiring panel why we wanted this specific individual because of their problem-solving skill sets. And people kept coming back to, but they don't have this certification and they don't have a college degree. And I'm like, I'm telling you, this person's brilliant. Give them a problem to solve in our hiring process and let them demonstrate to you how they could get after a complex problem. Uh, And luckily, it worked out for me as the hiring manager because the organization was open-minded enough to actually take my request and then create a complex problem and let them... Uh, the the person that was going through the hiring process kind of solve it moving through. And so I think um, where I'm going with this kind of entire uh, conversation is assessing people based upon their performance and their merit is what I would love to see massively like double clicked on in the current private sector and even in the public sector government hiring process, right? Where because I've seen thing in the uh, stuff in the past, even on the government side, where it's very parochial or cronyism in nature. And what I mean by that is you get hired because, oh, you were a Marine in the past, or I knew this person instead of these are the skills that I have that I can perform to do the job you're asking me to do based upon you know what you said my job role is supposed to be. So um, I guess... Uh, you know, kind of wrap this up for, um, you know, and I, I promised John and uh, Kyle, I'm not knife handing right now. Um, although, although I'm super passionate here is 
I feel like performance-based skills and merit-based hiring is the thing that people should think about a lot. And I'll end I, it there. I agree with you to to the 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 spirit of what you're trying to say, Rich. I do. But I'm gonna I'm gonna take a hard left on you and say that as much as we all say that all the time, you know, patriarchy is a social disease that affects the Marine Corps pretty heavily. And I think that anyone who's been in the Marines will tell you that's a hundred percent of the thing. And I think that if you have to pick a a industry in the real civilian world that isn't massively physically dominant, like oil rig worker or something, tech is phenomenally patriarchal in nature, which is a, a huge disservice, like we talked about earlier, to 50% of the population of the planet, 50.8. And I work in a company that spends a great deal of effort on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the reality is, is that many companies that are out there don't do the work to make it better. And if you are at a company right now, you need to ask your company to do the work to help spread all of the things and amazing parts of tech to as many different cultural, ethnic, racial, gender groups as we possibly can across the board. There is no incident where having more diverse views at the table is a bad thing. And it won't just happen because we are hiring based on merit. The system is just not set up for that to succeed. Yes, yes, to, bo to both you and Rich, but I'm going to take a right turn to your left turn. Oh, um, interesting, so John. What, what? Yes, boom, <laughs> okay. intersections. Um, so we're going to take a right turn here and say, even if you lived in the spirit of what Rich said and you went with the direction that, that Kyle talked about here, um, there is another thing that needs to be talked about that we kind of haven't really addressed either, which is get this awesome, diverse workforce. Everything, like Kyle, put in the back of your mind, or dear listener, Put in the back of your mind exactly what this diverse workforce is going to look like. Picture that. And then, and here was one of our biggest uh, problems at ROTC, and there was a lot of back and forth. Then you stick them into a strict and rigid and regimented military training you know, complex, right? You start them at ROTC marching, and you teach them marching. Why? So they get instant obedience to orders. Right. And we, we are going to do and we're going to treat, you know, two up and one back, you know, talking about infantry type formations and things like that. Uh, we have a bunch of kind of standardized uh, general things that it takes you a really long time of I take a this inch step and I lead off with this foot and, and a bunch of kind of like rote. I do these type of things, tasks um, and you jam a diverse workforce into rigid compliant based thinking right from the beginning it's kind of difficult to be like now that you got that compliance and instant obedience to orders go out and do all that really cool thinking uh, crap that we had talked about previously um so i think this is a, a a much more complex problem maybe than we are giving ourselves credit for well i'll say this as complex as this problem is that we're talking about it's infinitely more complex like none of us on this call has a true picture of what this is it's it's going to be more complex than any of our individual perspectives. Yeah, so I, I agree with, with everything that you guys are saying. And I think the most important thing, um, you know, especially in light of, you know, current events from global pandemics to, you know, racial and ethnic struggles we're having, you know, in the United States, um, we're talking about it, right? And that, that to me, right, is 
what's awesome about this podcast in general is we bring on a lot of really talented folks that have a lot of really diverse opinions and then we talk about it. But um, I, I, Kyle, I agree with what you said about the, you know, patriarchal nature of kind of both the military plus, um, you know, engineering roles. Right. And then, you know, the, the stuff I was talking about when it comes to merit-based hiring, you know, is that going to work for everybody all the time? Absolutely not. I mean, I was in an organization that was super diverse and claimed, hey, we do this, right? And it was still hard, right? But I think um, what what is massively impactful is this is one of those things where you actually have to go out and be an agent for change in your organization, regardless of how, how complex the problem set is. Because I just don't see it changing unless people actually stand up and dig in a bit and say, I'm going to be the Boy Scout or the Girl Scout here, and I'm going to do what's right because it's the right thing to do and see if me doing has any effect on my organization for, you know, for the better. Um, so I just think, you know, listeners out there, right, like to Kyle's point, if you're, if you're wondering what is it my organization should do? Um, what I try to do is look at myself in the mirror every day and say, how can I be that agent for change that, or, you know, thing that I want to change inside the organization and try to live that a little bit, uh, and, and walk in those shoes. So, um, so Whitney, I, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but, um, I just feel like we got to keep talking about it and you got to do, because if you don't do, you're just, then it's just talking about it. If that yep. makes sense. Yep. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I have to say, you know, it, it's a it's a fine balance, right, between really understanding the value of diversity in an organization and knowing theoretically that, that that's a good thing. And, you know, reading all the Harvard Business School uh, review articles about why diversity is good for the bottom line, and then actually challenging your own assumptions about what people can do when you're hiring someone because we are all sort of programmed as human beings to hire people that, that look like us and that remind us of ourselves. And, um, you know, whether that's a white man or a white woman, or, you know, it could be anybody, but because there are so many white men and, um, you know, so few people of color in, in sort of like the mid and, and upper levels of all of these organizations that will self-perpetuate by default unless people are really willing to go out of their way to, to break the cycle. And I think, you know, like you said, a lot of the, the political discussion that's going on in the U.S. right now is, is going to help with that. But there's just there's so much more uh, structural work that needs to be done, you know, within the education system, within the economic system. Like it's just it's built into those advantages that sort of those of us on this call and, and, you know, people who have those, um, those privileges, um, built into like every aspect, right. Of, of our society. And so figuring out how to, how to like crack that in, in whatever little corner of the world you're operating in is extremely challenging. And I, and I would agree that the merit-based thing is, it sounds good, but but I think that experience and history has shown us, um, and, and I can't remember who said what, because um, I don't know you guys well enough, but I, I don't think that it's enough. I, I have to agree that it's not enough um, because we've seen it, you, you know, we've watched it 
and and I think a lot of organizations try to do it do merit based hiring. And what's come out the other end is uh, maybe a little bit better than like the old boys club that we had before, but it's it's not it's not nearly enough. And so, you know, I know people are uncomfortable with saying, well. Um, you know, we have to keep looking. Well, we found the perfect person for the job, but we have to keep looking to make sure that we need a diverse candidate. You know, there's a lot of eye rolling, I think, in every organization when it's like, well, we need to make sure that we're hiring, um, hiring for diversity. People get very resentful of that. And, and it, it does get, you know, rankles up in a lot of places. And I, and I understand why, but I, I think slowly we're coming around to, as a society to the realization that it just some of this has to be forced a little bit. Um, not to say that you should hire someone who can't do the job, but, you know, keep looking. It's like find someone find someone who can do it and who's also going to add a diverse voice to your organization. You know, try, try a little bit harder. Um, and I, I think that that could make a huge difference over time if, if all of these organizations are willing to you know, put a little more energy into it and just, just push, push HR to give you one more batch of, uh, women who are wedding planners and <laughs> see what you might be able to, uh, to drum up. Cause I, you know, the people are out there and the more opportunity you create and the more diverse folks work in these jobs, then, you know, it creates a pipeline, right? Young people then see those people succeeding in those fields. They know that it's possible for them. And, you know, hopefully there's some ability to create a virtuous cycle, but it's going to take time and, and a lot of effort. Uh, so I want to double tap on one thing there. And Whitney, you said these need to be forced a little bit. And I want to, I want to gently soften the language a little bit and say what I want, I, what I personally <laughs> want to see, I want to see people just measure the data. Like the data yep. will not lie to you. Measure the data and implement the data. And I also want to call something out to win a bet against John, which is you mentioned virtuousness and just virtuosity. What we are asking people here to do is do the, the, the common uncommonly well, right? Listen to your data. It's a big CrossFit thing for those of you who aren't familiar with it, but we just want people to be virtuous in how they are doing this across their organizations, virtuous in how they are listening to the data and trying to implement a few of these changes. Uh, Whitney, can I also ask a follow-up question, which is, are you able to share any of the efforts that you and your company are doing? Because you are a hiring manager for your team, correct? Uh, I am, although my team is extremely small. So at the moment, I'm, I mean, I just hired one person. Uh, so it's not, well, our, it's not a regular practice. Our listeners me, do not need to know that. You could say you hired 10,000 and we would be like, that's awesome. Okay, okay I yeah. hire a ton awesome, of people. Awesome. I'm very important. <laughs> yeah. High, high powered <laughs> New York City yeah, hiring exactly. manager. It if this is all about setting the, the, the narrative, we're controlling the narrative here. Um, but but yes. anyway, uh, Whitney, are you at liberty to actually share any of the things that, that your company does to sort of like push the envelope on hiring for diversity? Like, I'm just, I'd love to know if there's like a realistic, like, yeah, and this is how we do that as a gentle, like example set. I don't know, John, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I would also say, uh, you know, Whitney, is there anything, and I know, I know you were personally active in the space, uh, not, not just in your role, although I know you're also active in your role, but you know, in your personal life, you're pretty active in kind of like the diversity, equity, inclusion space. And, uh, as you answer Kyle's question, or if you're able to, if you could also kind of give us the gone wrong, uh, kind of like Chappelle show version Ooh. of that so that we, cause, cause we are pretty good at, uh, maybe making the rookie mistakes. And so, and you know, any, any, uh, previous learning that you can give us, uh, obviously not, you know, meant to poke fun at all, but kind of like, Hey, 
if you tried to do uh, an initiative like this, here's a way you could make it go horribly wrong. <laughs> wrong. Avoid that. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had a really good soundbite for either of those. So in terms of, of organizational efforts that are ongoing, I don't want to get too specific because I, I do want to be careful yeah, about totally. understood, understood. Um, attribution because it will just make yep. it harder to get this out there in the first yep. place. But I will say that I think there is a lot more talk and ad hoc effort than there is systematic effort. And I, I don't mean that to sound maybe as negative as it does. I just don't think that a lot of organizations know how to do this in a systematic way. I agree with you 100%. So we know how to look at each open billet and say, okay, what can we do to try to get a diverse candidate into this job? But when it comes to cross-organizational recruiting for diverse candidates, getting out into diverse communities and advertising for jobs, I think that stuff is has been slower to evolve. It, it may be that I just don't see it. Um, I know that we do a lot of campus recruiting and that type of thing, but I don't, I, I would tend to doubt that a lot of that is specifically directed at diversity. Right. I will say that what's been happening politically in the US over the last few weeks has put a lot of energy into the system. And I think people are taking it much more seriously than, than they were in the past. I think it was always out there, but it was sort of um, somewhere between lip service and, and a serious initiative. So I, I think what's happening on the streets, you know, in New York and around the country is, is making a difference on that front. Um, I mean, I think the bottom line for, for both of these topics, if you think about cyber event management and just diversity from a gender and ethnicity standpoint, it really does sort of go back to the same set of issues, which is, you know, there's technical skill and then there's the ability to communicate. There's the ability to, um, to bring people together. There's, I hate to use the word people skills, but sort of softer skill sets that, that, are as important, if not more important in certain roles, you know, in some roles that technical knowledge is hundred percent of the problem or maybe never hundred percent, but you know, a very, a very big piece of the problem and that's fine. Um, but I think that that diverse skill set um, goes hand in hand with a diverse workforce, which is not to say that women and, and people of color have softer skill sets by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's a mindset, I think, of being able to understand what people other than yourselves, whether that's from a training perspective or an ethnic perspective or a gender perspective, can bring to the table and being willing to go out and look for that and recruit for it and appreciate it on your teams um, will bring reap significant benefits for, for any organization. Um, so, you know, I, th I think they're related and that's sort of maybe the way to pull it all together in the end. Um, cause they're, they're sort of, they're part of the same mental shift of like, how do we think about what skills we need and in, in any big organization, a cyber organization, a military organization or, or a private sector, uh, company or, or, uh, organization. That was great. All right, we just got through a ton of material. We got introduced to a new uh, cyber job and kind of what that does and the scope and sequence and how that can contribute to an organization. And we also got a, a little bit, you know, obviously we know we're just scratching the surface, but we got a little bit of 
uh, gender uh, talk here in uh, the end of the cast. So I think now's a great time to kind of toss it over as, as we're getting pretty close to time here and, and get our final thoughts in. So Rich, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, so my, my quick final thoughts here are kind of from three perspectives. The first one is I, I really truly feel like uh, with everything going on from the global pandemic to social issues uh, in the United States right now, you have to take some personal ownership in that, right? And be a catalyst for change in your organization. And then especially if you're a leader, which gets into the second point, which is take some risk, right? Um, you're going to find out, I believe, uh, I, I know I have in the past that when I took risk on hiring, when I went to my recruiters and said, I want a diverse set of people on my team, and I pushed HR and I pushed recruiting to get me candidates that I felt were diverse from multiple aspects, whether it's gender, ethnicity, race, um, educational backgrounds, um, it worked out better for me. And then the last thing, which Kyle and um, Whitney talked about a lot, um, you know, I mentioned merit-based hiring, but uh, I'll tell you what they both mentioned on making sure your organization has mechanisms and puts rigor against analyzing data and then applying that data to creating a culture that's diverse in your organization uh, cannot be overstated. Uh, so thanks. Uh, those are my closing comments. Over to you, Kyle. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I have any closing comments today other than to just say, Whitney, thank you so much for being on the cast today. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. And if you're out there in the world thank listening to this story, me. please wear a mask. I'd appreciate it. Whitney. I, I think I pretty much wrapped up my final thoughts in that last bit. So I would just thank you guys for having me. This has been a really, um, enjoyable and interesting conversation and I appreciate the chance to participate. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. And dear listeners, thank you for joining us. You can connect with us at social media on twitter.com backslash USMC underscore TF Phoenix. That's T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. Uh, before we head out, Whitney, is there any social media you would like to plug? Nope. Yeah, no one ever does that. <laughs> Except for Johnny G, which we love. I'll keep it going, John. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, Kyle, yeah. So, uh, anyone can find me at, at Kyle Moschetto on every social platform. Uh, let me know your thoughts on anything we've talked about in this show, previous shows, other shows. If you got questions, I am out there on the World Wide Web. Awesome. Everybody have a great night. Thanks, guys.